Welcome everyone to a brand new Nido podcast and also a brand new era in our content. I am Jose Luis Abao, the writer in residence for Nido, speaking to you directly from the free and sovereign Republic of Polanco in Mexico City. And today I am actually joined by two of my favorite people. First, I have the shortest lived Miami resident in history, Anacaro Mejia, who I, I, I've been told she's now applying to apartments in the Bay Area because apparently, like, what? Eight years of her life wasn't enough. Hi, Caro, how are you doing? <laughs> Hi, Jose Luis. Yeah, go Bay Area. And, and also, I am joined by the other Nido partner, Maria, who I am taking the podcast as a public opportunity to grill on the fact that it's almost impossible to get a meeting with her. Easier to do it with the Mexican president. Every time she comes to Mexico, we have a long exchange of texts, which lead to nothing. <laughs> so, Maria, welcome to the podcast again. Hello, Jose Luis. I'm so excited to be here. I want to correct. Um, Carol was actually in the Bay Area for 10 years, tried to get out, and unsuccessfully <laughs> left the Bay Area, and she's now crawling back. Um, and, well, I'm very excited I got out and very excited she's the one that's representing us over there because I am, I am an indoor girly. I thrive in the indoors. <laughs> Maria, oh, if you have discounts... Yeah. Maria gets out of the Bay Area, leaves to LA. <laughs> if you have discount codes for moving companies, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but as you can tell, we're trying to revamp. Sorry. No, I, the, Carol, you've moved so many times, they should give you a discount code by, the, by now. I know, I know. <laughs> I, they still I, don't. At this point, you're the reason why California is changing on the number of Congress people they have, given how much you move in and out of the state. But as you can probably tell from now, we, we're trying to revamp the way we do our podcast from the very fact that we're doing it in English to the fact that we're going to try to make it more appealing and actually personal. Uh, our entire goal in 2024 for content from you is that we want to actually bring you inside what it's like to be in our fund. We want to be able to discuss things directly, to make jokes as we do in our group chats. And we want you to also think of VC, to think of entrepreneurship as something fun and something that's actually part of your life. And according to yes, politics excited. also. <laughs> yes, also fits into this. Um, but yeah, for this episode, what we're going to do is take you through a couple of the predictions that we saw people post about in January um, and tell you a little bit more what we think about it. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the Nido. Welcome to the Nido. So Jose Luis, why don't we start? Why don't we start with your favorite topic, politics? Absolutely. Ding, so, ding, ding. Uh, you can, so what you can start to imagine now is the level of planning that we try to put into what we want to say. And the moment in which we discuss what were the key predictions for 2024, uh, someone interested in politics and Mexico, the number one trend that I think is going to matter and is going to redefine a lot of Mexico is our upcoming presidential election, in which one key factor is true. For the first time in the nation's history, one of the rare occasions in Latam where this happens, a woman is going to be president. The two front runners of the race are Claudia Sheinbaum, who's running with the current ruling party, Morena. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing to celebrate that we, make, we will have a woman president, unless something completely unexpected comes to happen. So as I was saying, the front runner currently is Claudia Sheinbaum leading in most polls. Here I, I place the poll for ENCO, which is the poll done by El País, one of the most reputable newspapers in Spanish, but you can see very similar patterns in other newspapers, be it El Universal, Reforma, or even El Financiero. 
in all of them, what happens is the clear front runner is Claudia Sheinbaum, and the second place is Sochil Galvez from the Pan PRD. And, and so, again, Jose Luis, I think... it is going to mean that we're matching him in that. Yeah. Pardon. No, no, no. I was just, I was going to moderate a bit um, so that, because I know you can cut all of this out. But I think with this in particular, mm -hmm. since you're going to be talking a lot about this slide, I think it's interesting if if we moderate you in in it's return. But um, so, Jose Luis, very exciting to hear, you know, this obviously, Caro and I are very passionate about gender equality mm -hmm. and very excited to have, you know, a, a woman president as the head of Mexico, something I actually never thought I was going to see in my lifetime. So I'm surprised it came this yeah. early, but I wanted to get a chance here, you know, to dig a little bit into your brain. I know you're, you're a politics guy. Can you tell us and, and the read and the audience um, a little bit about the history of politics in Mexico, maybe something very in a nutshell so that we get how important and <laughs> relevant this, this election is for the country. Totally. So as far as the markets goes, Mexico is a very recent one. Uh, in fact, for most of Mexico's histories, the country was ruled by a single party, the PRI, which in the 2000s, uh, through a series of complex events, transitioned into an open election in which the PAN, the right-wing conservative party, was able to win with a surprising candidate, Vicente Fox, the former governor of the state of Guanajuato. It also means, by virtue of Mexico being a, a recent democracy, that has a very recent history of women inclusion within democracy. It wasn't until the 1950s or late 1940s, I forget the exact date, in which women were first given the right to vote. There were some early experiments in some states like the Yucatan Peninsula, in which women were given earlier access to, to suffrage, but they were later removed and weren't given back until the 1950s. And so it is historic in many ways that in a span of 70 years, Mexico went to having absolutely no integration of women into the democratic polity and being an autocratic regime to being a full-blown democracy in which both of the main parties are nominating women. That is the most important mm -hmm. part of this. This is not necessarily just that it's uh, it, that something has happened and was an imposition occurred in which women are going to be, by virtue of some gender parity rule that exists within Mexico in many elections, going to be the candidates. It was actually open processes within both parties, the, co the open front, co the ample front coalition, PAN, PRI, and PRD, and Morena, mm -hmm the ruling party, both did their own internal processes, and in both of them, a woman won fair and square. That is something and I think that it's awesome. Yeah. And Jose Luis, one thing, one question, what do you think drove this to happen, right? Like we think, for us living in the US, we think that I've always seen as Mexico as not advancing as much um, from a gender perspective, and we're seeing the opposite. Um, <laughs> we're seeing the opposite with the US today versus versus Mexico, and what do you think brought this brought this to be? There's a, conf there's a great variety of reasons why. Mm -hmm. I think the first one actually does have to do, even though I mentioned that quotas didn't play a role into the election of Claudia Sheinbaum and Social Galvez, it does actually have to do with the fact that Mexico has very strict gender quotas in the legislature mm -hmm. and other political actions. So for example, depending on past elections, it will, depend on, it will determine the gender a political party has to nominate for a particular office be it governor, okay. be it local mayor, be it some particular level of seats. That's how Mexico achieves gender parity in the legislature. And that, for many reasons, is important. It allows mm -hmm. a lot of political figures to appear on the stage that probably wouldn't have had the opportunity otherwise. But it also changes the entire psyche of the country when you know that 50% of your legislatures are women and a growing number of governors are women as well. 
We still haven't reached parity in the number of governors that are men versus women, but we are getting close. And it's been a time of a lot of immense achievements. So for example, Xochitl Galvez, well, sorry, yeah, Claudia Sheinbaum was the first female mayor of Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Other people had run for the position, but Claudia was able to, to break the glass ceiling and achieve it as well. Xochitl Galvez has also been a trailblazer in doing a lot of legislation of that sort, being one of the first women to run for governor in her home state of Hidalgo. So we've seen and this think, as a very recent trend. And yeah. And and from there, I think I have a very, you know, a question that I think might be interesting for, for those in the audience. Um, now that we're comparing kind of both of their career trajectories, can you give us like a little bit, maybe in a sentence or two, what the politics might look like for, for either as president? You know, what will be their main focus? What How do we think is going to change versus what we see AMLO doing today? And, you know, maybe what you're excited about for either of, you know, with either of these women. So it is very important to understand uh, some of the nuance of Mexico's electoral process. So we haven't officially begun political campaigns yet. <laughs> Mexico has a very complex legislation around when candidates are able to make proposals or not. And so we're currently in this period called the inter-campaign period, between the moment in which parties chose their candidates, the pre-campaign, and the actual campaign where they can go out and make proposals. That is very important because we don't really know what their policies are. We can make a lot of inferences. Claudia Sheinbaum, for the most part, a lot of her rhetoric has been to continue the process of transformation of the current administration. That is lots of social spending, an emphasis on the lower echelons of Mexican society, and some of other things that are worrisome, like attacks on Mexico's democratic institutions, uh, particularly the Supreme Court and other institutions such as the National Transparency Institute, the INAI, or Mexico's electoral authority, the INAI. That being said, we do not know. Claudia is also coming from a very different background to the current administration from which she hails. <laughs> president Lopez Obrador, the current president of Mexico, had a long history of social activism. His earliest forms of political involvement were actually defending petroleum workers in his home state of, of Tabasco and then do, did a long period of activism and militancy. Claudia Chamber, on the other hand, is an academic. Um, some people have gone as far as calling her the potential Angela Merkel of Mexico. Uh, she actually did a lot of her career in UNAM, Mexico's largest university, focused on renewable energies. And so the great debate is whether she will be able to break away from party lines and push for a more technocratic agenda, similar to what she did in the early days of, Mexico, of her tenure as Mexico City mayor, uh, when she was actually pushing a lot of large infrastructure projects like the telepheric mm-hmm. lines in Mexico City or making internet publicly accessible for the entire city, which is currently a reality, or whether she will follow more party lines. So so that's so, yeah. mm-hmm. Sorry, no, but I just wanted to say that that's so interesting right now. And I know we're going to do an entire podcast around nearshoring, the famous nearshoring, which yeah. we, Maria and I thought was more famous until we've been spending more time <laughs> in the U.S. and have realized that people here have maybe not heard as much about it as we have yeah. in Mexico. But I think it's such so important from like the renewable energy yeah. perspective and what's going to happen there, because I believe that that's going to make or break <laughs> Um, it's going to be like a make or break factor for Absolutely. what happens with the opportunity that Mexico has right now, right? So yeah. even the fact that Claudia has this background gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as a and, perpetual and a optimist, <laughs> as a perpetual yeah. optimist, as a VC, I think that I, I definitely want to see like the good things in, in both these women. Um, I have many personal preferences 
within this election. But I hope, you know, you can see that Claudia is definitely the key contender. I do believe she's going to win. And, and Ascaro was mentioning, I really hope that the sustainable energy and the energy crisis that I think we're going to face really soon in the country is, is her first priority or one of the first. We have many things that we need to fix. But, but the thing also is that Claudia is an odd candidate that we cannot predict. That is certainly true. Xochitl is also rather unpredictable. Xochitl came, comes from a very different background to Claudia. Claudia comes from a technocratic academic background. Xochitl actually comes from absolutely nothing. It's a rags to riches story. She's from a really small town in the state of Hidalgo, a relatively poor state in Mexico. Uh, she rose to prominence as an entrepreneur, actually. She studied CS at UNAM at the same time as Claudia. They actually coincided and were in not the same graduating class, but they were within the same university in the same years. She went on to work in tech and created her own consulting firm and only entered politics in the 2000s when Mexico has a democratic transition uh, as, through a headhunter. And she's recruited as an indigenous oh, wow. woman to lead the, uh, the equivalent to an, to an indigenous institute within the government of Mexico. Mm -hmm. She then abandons politics for a couple of years, decides to run for governor of her home state of Hidalgo, loses, and then runs for mayor, uh, for bureau chief of the Miguel Hidalgo Bureau in Mexico City, later enters the Senate and becomes a very active uh, protester against the current government. However, Xochitl is not the common candidate for the opposition. We cannot really think of Mexico anymore as a dichotomy of left versus right with Claudia mm -hmm. Sheinbaum and Morena representing the left and the PRI, PAN, PRD in a coalition representing the right. Because Xochitl is fairly left-wing. Uh, Xochitl has voted in yep. favor of government programs that favored by the current government. Uh, in fact, she's been very vocal about keeping those programs in her, current, in, her, in her coming administration. So there's some things that are factual. I think that regardless of who wins, we will have a woman president, which is incredible. And I think it's also worth noting that social spending for Mexico is likely going to go up. We do not know yep. in which particular areas, and we haven't heard of any fiscal reforms, which I think that this is starting to get to some areas of, that are far more important to investing. Like we're going to see yes. governments of high social spending. We're going to see governments focusing a lot of development programs. We haven't seen particular trends of how this is going to favor business or yep. which of the particular policies are going to be business friendly and more so with nearshoring. Nearshoring is taken almost, and I, I would love to hear your opinions actually. Like I think as when you, we're taking nearshoring as this given, like this God-given right that Mexico is going to be the next uh, China in which the entire world is focusing on Mexico, but I haven't heard any real policies of how we're going to make this happen. And that's something that worries me. I, yeah. I always say how, um, you know, nearshoring is happening besides our government, not because of it. Um, I think Mexico has had a few opportunities in the past that they haven't capitalized on. I think this one is one of the ones that I've heard the most people excited about. Um, we've actually seen the numbers, so mm. we're getting you know, very high numbers of foreign direct investment into the country. We now trumped China as the U.S.'s um, number one, you know, export partner or trade partner in the world for the first time in the last 20 years. So the numbers are kind of showing that Mexico, besides their government, is going towards a place uh, where they are capitalizing on nearshoring. The thing that worries me, though, and that's where I think some some reforms need to come in is energy we're building a lot of industrial plants we're getting all of this you know incredible investment but if we don't have the energy in the water to supply these 
mm-hmm. these plants, I think yeah. is going to be very hard to upkeep the nearshoring and, and be able to produce as much as we think we can produce. Uh, the other thing is I also think there are some areas in the country that they still don't have the talent to be able to be building these these plants. Um, specifically, like the Yucatan Peninsula is a great place to start building industrial plants. Um, it's right on the water. Yeah. You can ship things from, a, you know, very easily. But definitely there's like a deficit in in the talent that is there. So I think if these social spending programs are spent in a way that is helping, you know, education and helping, you know, with these communities and upbringing the communities, I think it might be great. From what we've seen from the current government, that is not the case. Not a lot of it is going to education and most of it is just kind of free cash for people to continue, you know, um, voting for the same party, or at least that's what I think um, is happening. But I'm hoping there'll be some change and I'm, you know, in favor of social spending when it's when it's rightly spent, right? So hopefully this is this is yeah. our time. And this is super interesting and we'll probably do a full episode on nearshoring. I promise we will define it and we'll go through exactly what this means. But so we're saying that for this we consider this to be a fact. Mexico yes. will have a woman president this year unless something catastrophic or weirdly weird happens. Uh, but let's go on to the second prediction. And it will be before the U.S., which is also part of the Correct. title. And yeah. they will also be young. They will also be young, <laughs> which is important. Relatively speaking, yes. Like they, I mean, um, yeah, so if you US. compare, they're literally teenagers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it is, a, it is a huge night and day comparison to the U.S. Like we spent like this last couple of minutes talking about the facts about Mexico's election. Like there are some things yeah. that are going to happen. We cannot say yeah. anything about the U.S. <laughs> no, not yet. Hopefully, hopefully at some point we'll be able to have a conversation around that. But let's go on to the second prediction. So basically, as we start the year, and you probably listen to podcasts and a lot of VCRs, what people are saying is that deal volume and activity will increase significantly in 2024. The first thing I will say is that people will say, were saying this about 2023. And as we can see um, this in the beginning, that was not the case. Um, I think, again, as Maria mentioned, as VCers, we are eternal optimists, uh, but we can see here in the graphs just the facts of both the capital invested and in particular, the number of GEOs went significantly, significantly down in particular in Latin America. But in the whole world, um, it felt like 2023 was this moment where capital was just so like locked up, right? Like there were no, people were not deploying in any of, in any of the stages. I think the early, the early stage was the exception. And the reason it was the exception is because so many funds were raised during the 2021 period to, Mm -hmm. to target this early stage. So these are the funds that have the capital to be able to deploy that had the capital to be able to keep on deploying at the early stages. Um, but I'm very curious to see what will happen eh, with the capacity for a lot of those funds to continue fundraising just because of what 2021 meant um, from a valuation perspective and from a returns perspective. I am praying that the IPO window will actually open. We just saw a, a one of the, um, yeah, like the first Mexican IPO in how many years? I forgot the number of years, but in a long time to IPO at, in, in New York. And... It's Tiendas 3B. We wrote a little bit about it in our latest um, 
newsletter, which if you haven't followed, you should definitely go follow. Um, but yeah, I, I am still struggling of how to think about deal volume. And Maria, how, what do you think? How, do, how are you seeing, how are you thinking well, about think this this year? There's, there's a couple things to note. So the will increase significantly in 2024. Are we comparing it to 2021 or are we comparing it to 2023? I think that's like the one thing that, <laughs> that I'll say. I don't think going back to the 2021 levels is going to happen anytime soon. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think it, the market's correcting itself. 2021 was a crazy time. Valuations were ridiculous. Um, we've talked about this a lot. And I think people just were driven by herd mentality and FOMO. And, you know, we could also do a full episode on just that. Um, we did see that last year, as you said, Caro, capital seemed to be gone um, or very tightly placed um, under a mattress and hard to deploy. So there's a couple of things I think for 2024. I think there'll be more later stage companies um, raising money. I think the funds that are doing growth and later stage are back on. Um, it won't be anywhere near what we saw in 2021, but I think it'll be better than 2023. Um, I think last year was kind of like kick a can down the road. A lot of even in, within our portfolio and what we're seeing with these companies is they're waiting to raise until they're absolutely sure that mm -hmm. they have the best metrics in the market to go out and raise. Cause otherwise it's a bloodbath out there. Um, so a lot of these companies, I mean, we invest in B2B sales cycles are really long. Um, so getting to these metrics yeah. is hard enough. And right now the, the bar is just higher. So I'm expecting early stage to probably stay very similar to 2023. I think it, mm -hmm. there'll be a couple of ones that, that, you know, couldn't race last year, we'll try to race this year, but I think half of them will die. Um, they won't be able to raise and and that will maybe in, in terms of deal flow, it'll be more, but in terms of deals done, I don't think it'll be much more than 2023. So that's, that's my prediction. Yeah. And the thing I will add here is that no matter the kind of deal volume, I do think that the kind of deal quality that's, that will come out in this year and that actually came out of the last year as well, Right now, you're really seeing the founders that really want to build, mm -hmm. right? Because in 2021, you would see the founders who thought that working for a tech company in the Silicon Valley and founding a startup were the same thing because raising money was really easy. You could pay yourself really well. And I think right now, founders are really having to live the real life of an entrepreneur. And for me, that it's as for my job, it makes things easier, right? Because there's already like a pre-selection of people who want to go through this um, in the worst quote of quote on, of times. Um, but we're still, all of the advancements that we're seeing in AI and all of the innovation, I think part of the reason that people are talking about why San Francisco is back is because of this entire movement with AI, which we'll see how much of it turns out to be a bubble, how much of it doesn't. But I think that um, just having this excitement around this, even in such a difficult time um, is what brings the entrepreneurs who really want to build to build. And I think this is a perfect transition to talk about the next prediction because I think they're very close to, they're tied very closely together. Before we go to the um, next, can, can you go back one huh. slide, Carol? Um, before we go to the next prediction, um, I'd love to, you know, just mention, I don't know if 
the audience knows yet, but Jose Luis is now working with one of our portfolio companies, mm -hmm. Alba. He is doing incredibly well. And I think I'd also love to hear just one quick comment from you coming from the startup world or being on the other side. Like, what do you feel? What are you seeing? Mm -hmm. Or, or are you just focused on building and aren't seeing anything outside of the, of Alba? <laughs> I, I am certainly tunnel vision, I have to say. And it's interesting to zone out and to see a lot of the optimism you guys have. I think that optimism is shared. In particular, I feel as though if I were to characterize it, I, when, when you were talking, what I was thinking is, what is the justification for this optimism? I feel as though we're seeing super green graphs in, on screen right now. This idea of deal flow going incredibly low, deal value going incredibly low. And yet the startup world does feel optimistic. And I think there's two forces for this. One of them we already talked about, and you're showing the idea that global supply chains are relocating towards Mexico and all of Latam. And that is causing an immense interest in just the overall region and Mexico in particular. But the other one is AI really feels as though everything is changing the world. And, and Maria mentioned, I, I now work for Alba, which is doing AI and logistics. And I am extremely happy about it, but mostly because I do also feel as though we are in an intersection of history. And mm -hmm. I feel as though that, that is what actually is happening. Um, if you think of, to the history of entrepreneurship in LATAM, you will likely start to see some interesting cycles. The first early versions of startups in LATAM tended to be copies or imitations mm -hmm. of other startups that were happening in the US. And that's okay, that's how most ecosystems tend to be built. In fact, many of them tended to outperform the US. Mercado Libre is currently worth an X amount of times more than eBay, which they originally started mimicking, and now is one of the biggest platforms in LATAM, mm -hmm. one of the biggest companies in LATAM. But now we're seeing a shift in which true innovation is believed to be capable of creation within LATAM. Not just the idea that we have to imitate, but that we can have more novel ideas that exists within the region, and AI is a huge proponent, a huge component of that. The ability for you to create things has gone significantly down from the idea that we can make images for contenido easily instead of hiring someone, a photographer, to help us with it, to how can we streamline processes with the AI. So I think if I were to put uh, my sentiments on this prediction is that there's actually a huge optimism in our ability to create because of the confluence of these forces, that the world is looking at LATAM for the first time in a really long period and that AI is actually here to transform everything. Yes, and you know, if without optimism, we wouldn't exist. Um, yeah. A, I love to talk about in these like moments, I love hearing investors talk about how, um, you know, when they were pitched these crazy ideas like Airbnb and you would have had to be so optimistic to like believe that letting people stay in your home it was going to be a thing that would work and look at and look at the at it now right so so yeah, yeah we need this opt optimism to exist um and now jumping into the next prediction and talking about optimism i think a lot of people are this interest rates if we go back to like the baseline of why deal like why everything has happened it's we cannot trace it down to mainly interest rates which is 2021 was a zero interest rate time. I think people are calling it like ZIT or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was on I was on X and they were putting it like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? It took me a while. <laughs> um, but but yeah, people are talking about how they they're, they have sta stabilized and will start coming down. And, but at the same time, the Federal Reserve is saying that uh, interest rate cuts in March are not the base case. So. I think this has been very unpredictable. 
Um, and this directly affects how our entire ecosystem works. So how are you two, how are you two feeling about interest rates? So I, I think it's worth like taking a step back and actually mm -hmm. understanding why interest rates matter. I think that we take it for Oigan, granted. Give me one second. Yeah, Perdón, está, high, se movieron las cosas de la gráfica. Y creo que uh, se movieron is, las de recesión. Y ahora la recesión aparece como like en a... julio. One second. Espérate. Lo lamento. Sí, sí, no parece que como que la... Las recesiones fueron en, en el 2017 y creo que se vale que está mejor que no crean que esa es la realidad. Ok, eh, perdón. Entonces empiezo desde, desde el principio. No pasa nada. Pues capaz sí, porque, o sea, si no se va a ver, se va a ver medio raro. Si quieres, nos di como a ah, perfect segue. Sí, perfecto. Sorry. Yeah, so this is a perfect segue um, for... Our third prediction, which is, well, I won't say ours, the third prediction that we've been looking at, which is that interest rates have stabilized and will start coming down. Um, we will talk a little bit more about why interest rates matter, but it, what people are saying is that, you know, we were already over the hump. These things are going to start, interest rates are going to start going down. And this is important because we were in 2021, where all of the craziness happened, we were in a moment of zero interest rates, right? Which people are talking about. It's really funny to like go on X and try to see what people are saying around them because everyone's now acting like though they weren't acting that way when there were zero interest rates, but everyone was acting the same way. So it's funny to see how people cycle. Um, but I'm, I'm really wondering, how are you feeling? How are you both feeling about this um, and the contradiction of what people are saying and then what the Fed is saying? So, so I think that to start, there's a lot of sentiments that we have to be able to take apart and try to understand why this, mm -hmm. why this actually matters. Um, that's, I, at the end of the day, I, I try to think why these metrics actually are important for the world of VC. And so let's take a step back. So interest rates at the end of the day are the rates at which banks can borrow money from the Federal Reserve. That's like a very summarized version of what they are, but it's a metric for the availability of capital. If interest rates are high, that means that it actually, you have to actually have to pay a lot of interest in the money that you're borrowing. If they are low, it's almost like getting free money and you can pay for it mm -hmm. regardless. In 2021, uh, during the recession created by the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. government was trying to shift their monetary policy significantly, and particularly trying to get people to spend more money to fuel the economy back again. That's what actually happened, and that's what created a huge part of the VC bubble that we saw in Latam. Money, capital was freely available. People were looking for ways in which to make money and where to invest it. And now that the economy is actually in a period of high inflation, uh, there's a lot more restrictions to how this capital is used in order to try to fuel, in a way to like lower the, the, to cool down the economy and try to make it a lot more reasonable. So when I think of it, I try to think of the Fed as the voice of reason within the economy. We don't want to be overly optimistic. And I, I do actually have a lot of trust in central banks, which is rare for someone so into politics these days. But the ultimate idea is that you have a team of, of highly cap capable economists trying to look at the metrics and how is it going to be that you can actually lower inflation? Because it is actually very dangerous. If you are to start lowering the interest rate right now and inflation remains high, you're going to incentivize people consuming more, inflation is going to go through the roof, and your economy can just free fall into oblivion. 
So I particularly see it as a sign that the world hasn't actually overpassed a lot of the consequences of COVID just yet. Yeah. On the brink of it, which is a very annoying part, is we are, we're almost ready to be there, but we're not quite yet. And some of the early signs actually came in January when the consumer price mm -hmm. index, one of the key measures for inflation in the U.S., actually went up, indicating that the economy is, is likely not ready for interest rate cuts. Mm -hmm. But I would love to hear your perspectives, too. Yeah, I think the, the thing to note, and, and this graph here to me is very interesting because you kind of see the correlation of interest rates and, and inflation in the U.S. Um, for the last like 24 years. And one of the things that's that to me was interesting to see is the peak of inflation that we lived in the in, during COVID, right? And right after COVID. Um, so that peak is like higher than whatever we were seeing in the 2000s and in the 20, um, 20, 2008 recession that we had. Um, so that's like the first thing that I, that I notice when I'm thinking about uh, inflation versus interest rates. I think the fact that it went so high up, the economy was growing, um, the government printed so much money. Uh, I think that there's still, as you said, Jose Luis, there's still like things that are trickling down from the COVID-19 pandemic, but also from this like craze of expansion that it is not, we shouldn't be expanding as, as quickly. And I think the Fed is going to keep the rates as is until they're absolutely certain that inflation has been going down for quite a while. Because even if we see it here, like inflation right now, um, or like the, the latest metric we have on this graph is still quite high. Like it's, it's definitely, you know, at the level that it was in some of the other recessions that we've had. So we're still mm -hmm. not at a point where I think it's stable enough, um, you know, in that good, like 2%, 3% um, inflation rate that we want within the country. So I, I agree that that definitely the cuts aren't going to be significant this year, um, which means that for venture, it's still going to be harder to raise funds. It's going to be harder to raise capital as, as founders. Um, and the maybe maybe next year we get some bigger cuts, but I don't think they'll be huge this year. And yes, we still have for... Sam Altman wanting to. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, does this, do you think this changes your, your perspective on the last prediction? Because we were talking about this like almost hopeless optimism, deal flow is going to grow, things are going to be better. And now we're actually seeing like a more somber environment, in which we might see some cuts and some more available interest. Yeah. I think that the fact that deal flow increases, it's not necessarily a sign is not necessarily a purely positive sign. And what I mean by this is mm -hmm. deal flow is going to increase because startups are running out of money. So they're going to come to a point where they just have to go out and raise because that's their only option. Mm -hmm. um, they're not at the point where they're being able to break even. They can't bootstrap and like manage really slow growth while they keep themselves funded with their own revenue. So this year, the startups that kind of like kick the can down the road last year because metrics weren't there are going to have no other choice than to come mm -hmm. out. So I think that's why we're going to see more deals that are available. I don't know if necessarily it'll be more deals that close. So I think that was like the distinction that yeah. that, that I see that is interesting. Um, I'm hoping I am wrong and I'd love to see more deals closing and more people being able to, to raise money with obviously with good metrics, but a market correction where if you're doing well, 
you get funded, um, which is definitely not what we saw in 2023 necessarily. Um, and I, I don't think that, I mean, the, the Fed not cutting the rates right now is not necessarily a exactly. negative thing for me either. It's their you know, dealing with inflation. I think it's good that they're doing that. Eventually, I think the rates are going to go down. This is a cyclical economy. We go up and down. Um, and, yeah. and I think especially like the 2022 vintage funds are going to do amazingly well because of this, because they're going to start coming down and in, in the next couple of years yeah. and startups. And I also think, again. yeah. And I also think that we are in a much more optimistic case with a lot more clarity than we were a year ago, right? Yeah. Although, although it's not clear that in March they'll cut, they'll do the cuts. I think the numbers are showing that the movements they've been doing in the economy are kind of working and that they're doing it in a way that's like not, um, not gonna like, yeah, that it's just like moving slowly, but it is moving towards the right direction. And I think from what we've seen in our world, people are a lot more optimistic, particularly on the later stage side, you know, we are seeing an IPO, like certain IPOs happening, which for me, like it doesn't change the perspective. It's still, we're not going to go back to 2121, which is what we yeah. discussed previously. Um, but I still think, I don't think this is a bad thing. It's just you know, it's it's not gonna take us to that Disney world, which in which we used to live in, except if you're Sam Altman, who's now trying to raise a trillion dollars for a new semiconductor <laughs> company, which will now, well, not yeah, which will now take us to the last prediction that we the entire we GDP have for today, of Mexico which is that is what Sam Altman well, wants <laughs> to raise for his for his company. <laughs> no, it's far more, right? It's seven trillion. Um, um, I, I believe is the, the current number that is being floated around. And these are all our speculations, but it's $7 trillion, which is seven times the economy of Mexico. I had one trillion in my head, but I, I also think it's seven. No, I think it's seven. Yeah. It, it is an outrageous amount. Like, it was something it's, ridiculous. It is an outrageous yeah. amount. There gets to a point where you can't dimension, right? Like once we're talking about these trillions, men, you're like... These men. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, we're, Go we're Sam. saying that at the same time that we're talking about the fact that we do think, I think we agree, um, that semiconductors, uh, will become the new gold. I think if, for whoever has had Nvidia stock for a long time, go you, um, <laughs> they are absolutely killing it. And, and yeah, I, I don't know if Sam's going to be able to raise this trillions, but I'm just going to call it trillions, but I think, but I think he will. Um, and I think it's super important to talk. I think in venture, we're often talking about the software and just like, oh, we don't want to invest in capital intensive things, but we forget that without the capital intensive things, software cannot exist. You know, I think um, there was this class I took in which we talked about how so many things in technology are called the cloud. Um, or farms, like server farms, and how a lot of that is like brought back into nature and makes it seem as though it's just these things that come out of the air. Um, but they're not. They're all costly things that take up a lot of energy and that take up a lot of a lot of development. And I think, Maria, you were in this industry um, for a while trying to source these pieces of gold. So, so how do you think about this? 
Well, yeah, I'll give I'll give the audience a little sneak peek. But I used to buy semiconductors for procurement organizations within some big tech companies, um, and the thing that surprised me the most about semiconductors is there are so many types of them. Like you can go from the tiny, tiny chips to like the big silicon wafers, like semiconductors are just more and more integrated to every your everyday life. So there are more chips mm -hmm. put into your laptops, more chips that go into your phones, chips that are now in your vacuum, in your blender, anything that's, you know, connected to, to the internet. And that I think to me was like an eye-opening experience a few years ago where you were just seeing like the increasing amount of products that had semiconductors in them. So I think with that, like it's obviously n nothing's infinite, but it seems like it's this infinite amount of use cases that we have for semiconductors and the increasing demand is not necessarily meeting supply. So I had a lot of really big yeah. issues because even being a huge tech company, it was hard to get allocation at these semiconductor factories because they're expensive to build, hard to build and hard to manage. You have these, you know, PA, electrical engineer PhDs, antenna engineers that are leading these factories. And it's not like we're cranking them out as if they were rabbits. Um, <laughs> you know, we, it's, it's hard to train these people. So I think I'm excited about what's happening in, in this world, um, there's a lot of opportunities there, but as you mentioned, Caro is the, um, it's very energy intensive, space intensive, and and I'm worried about where we're gonna continue to source these from. The last thing I'll say is it goes back to nearshoring um, and how excited I am of the opportunity that Mexico has again with like building these plants. I don't know if we're there yet in terms of talent. I know we are, you know, graduating a lot of engineers in Mexico mm -hmm. percentage wise, but these, these plants do require a lot of specialization. So I'm hoping that, you know, with all of the investment that is coming from the Asian firms into Mexico, we'll be able to, to capitalize on what we need so that we can build enough semiconductors here. But I, I do think we're just going to see them more and more. It's in a way, I, I've been thinking a lot about thoughts. this, about AI. Yeah, um, there's the parallel I've come back to time and time again. There's, and this is not going to make sense at the beginning, but I promise it does. There's a chapter in 100 Years Solitude in which, uh, which is a great novel about Garcia Marquez. Favorite book. Town in Colombia. It's one Favorite of the greatest book. books of time. There's a moment in which trains arrive for the first time to the small town. And one of the sentences is, is something of the sort that Macondo, the small town, could have never predicted the changes that would come once the train brought with it modernity. And in a way, that's how it feels. I feel as though AI in many ways has opened the doors to the trains of Macondo, to Latin America, to the entire world. And there's this immense demand for the things that AI can do to us. I, I, I push anybody listening to this podcast to think of how many times they've used ChatGPT in the past week. And in order for that Hopefully to happen, is what AI can do for us and that. not to us. Yeah. And that's also true, right? I think, I mean, if we go back to the parallel, I think there's also a lot of doomsday cult about what could happen to AI and how it's going to destroy us. But there is this immense optimism that we are entering a new era of modernity, that we are, mm -hmm. the train has just arrived. 
to the city. And for the first time, we're going to enter a new era of human existence. That's awesome. And it is incredible. And it's one of the few areas that people are crazy enough to go and raise the GDP of LATAM several times over to try to restructure the entire economy because we're going to need it uh, because of the way these chips work. It's not as simple as just going into ChatGPT and hoping it works. You need to have gigantic farms, as Caro was mentioning. You need to have very complex chips that most of them are sourced currently from just two or three countries in the world. The vast majority come from Taiwan, uh, another amount from South Korea, and a prominent mm -hmm. number from China. But we haven't seen other countries being able to adequately create semiconductors because of how complex they are. But we're in the brink. I think we have enough optimism in the world and the man that we might see the first semiconductor factories in place outside of Asia. And that would be incredible. But it's going to take time, right? And I think yeah. that, you know, as we think uh, of moving the supply chains away from China and like all of the I think geopolitical will be in addition to again. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what I mean is like, I think that the decoupling from, from China, like semiconductors will be one of the things um, that will make this harder. Um, and also one of the things that why there's so much geopolitical tension with Taiwan as well, which again, you haven't subscribed to our newsletter. We have an entire piece around why this, why we should all care about Thai, about Taiwan, and also another one on on China. But I do like one of the things I think here is just like this is going to take time. This is going to take resources, and with the pace of how things are moving in, with AI, it's going to be the companies that are there today and can scale that will hope like will set the pace for how this happens. And there will need to be a lot of like government support for this in particular um, in the U.S. if they want to decouple from China. And Caro, I think so, something else to hear I... is that I, the the decoupling, I think it's going to be more like this is in addition to, in my opinion, like these semiconductors will still be produced in Taiwan, South Korea and China, probably at similar levels and even growing yeah. levels. But with the increasing demand, I think that is where other countries might fill more of that void. Like I know they're building factories in India, trying to build factories in Mexico. Like I think in this sector in particular, it'll all be like in addition mm -hmm. to just because of the great amount of demand, but, but we'll see. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. My point, my point is I don't think there's going to be an ability <laughs> to decouple from China. <laughs> um, in the way that there might be the ability in other sectors because of the pace of the, at which this is moving. Yeah. So as, as we do come to an end, I have one final question for both of you. We, and I think you both are optimists by nature, otherwise you wouldn't be in the VC industry. But I am curious, if you were to give it a scale from one to 10, what is the level of optimism you're coming into 2024 with? Oh, I would say 9.5. I think Maria and I both lived a crazy past few years. Um, in which we were doing so many things at some of the hardest moments. Um, we raised a fund during, like we started raising a fund when the market, <laughs> when all of this that we talked about started happening. So I'm all coming into this year from a personal note, from a very optimistic view. Um, I'm moving back to the Bay Area, which I'm thrilled about. I was just there last week and to see San Francisco back alive just filled my heart and made me, I think San Francisco as a hub is kind of a representation of how the world is doing sometimes um, just because of like where people are. And I think to see the energy and to see the data behind that for me really brings the optimism. Again, some parts of AI will probably be 
above all, but the fact that people are there and are building and are excited um, is what's driving me. So, so yeah, a really high level of optimism um, because if not, I could not be a VC. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, I think similarly to Caro, I was going to say 10. Um, and the reason why I say 10 is not necessarily that I'm like optimistic 10 about the market and everything aligning. And, and I, I don't think that's true. And I don't think that'll be true of any year we'll ever live in. Um, there's always mm -hmm. ups and downs. But I am a 10 optimistic on, you know, being in this industry, doing venture capital in the US, Mexico, cross-border trade world. I think that it's definitely a cyclical environment, but we're grabbing it in like the best part of the wave. And we'll have to live through a couple of years that are that are rough. Um, but I think this vintage is going to be amazing. The 2022-2023 vintages are, are going to look great in 10 years. Perfect. And you, Jose Luis? Amazing. As a tech, <laughs> yeah. as a tech... I employee what is your optimism and are how crazy are we <laughs> no i i would have to divide it in two my political optimism which is where most of my past life lays is not as high as my overall economic and social optimism um mm -hmm. i think i would give it a 20 and even as high like double the amount of possible <laughs> optimism to how i think of tech no genuinely i do actually feel as though we're living through what could be the greatest cycle of human history that we're about to enter an era of immense change in which human prosperity could mm -hmm. flourish. I have never thought I would actually like the techno optimist manifesto by Mark Andreessen, but I actually really do like it. Um, but on politics, I think we have immense rooms for errors this year. Mm -hmm. Especially, it's one of the biggest years for democracies in the world. The U.S. election has a humongous potential for downfall. Um, so that actually would. But that would probably push me down. I would probably. You know what? I edit my right 10. Now. The US election edits my 10. It brings it down to like an <laughs> yeah. or something. But I just prefer well, not to but, think about it. <laughs> we, we don't have to. And we have many months to come from, from the needle to talk with you about all these issues. And the US election is not until November. So yes. rest assured, we will have more content for you, more discussions, and more opinions. So and when I want to end, yeah. yeah, no, I want to end with a note. Um, again, I've mentioned it a couple times, but if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter contenido, please do. And if there's if there's anything we touch upon there that you would like us to discuss in the podcast that you're curious about, please reach out to us. Um, we're always looking to just bring the themes that are the most interesting to our audience. So please, um, please be sure to to let us know what you like, what you don't like, and so happy for this first episode in English. The first of many. Thank you, and it was great to be with you, with your guys. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. See you soon.